and infects all of us from time to time, if not daily and by the hour and by the minute in some form or another. You know, it's rare, I guess, when you get on a topic or a sermon where no one can really say, I know who he's talking about, because we do that pretty frequently. Uh, It can't be me, it has to be so-and-so that's uh, drawing those comments. But in this particular topic, no one is exempt at all. Uh, It affects every human being who is every who is walking the earth or who ever has walked the earth. And if you think you deal with fear in everyday life, let's go to Revelation 6 and see that we really haven't seen much yet. I want to introduce today's sermon here and with a couple of other scriptures that are parallel with it so that we see that this is certainly a major, very major subject, one of the most important subjects that we could address, whether for good or for bad, is either a wrong or a right kind of fear, but certainly the overall topic is important. So we're talking about the time of the sixth seal here in verse 12 of Revelation 6. And I beheld when he had opened the sixth seal, and lo, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became as blood. So some severe changes in the atmosphere. The stars of heaven fell to the earth. Now that doesn't mean the the stars that we see out there when we look up into the night skies because they're so many times bigger than the earth that uh, they couldn't fall on the earth. So this is obviously metaphoric and can be referring to spirit beings, uh, evil spirits that are sent to the earth and fall to the earth. The heaven departed as a scroll when it is rolled together and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. A time of gigantic change. I don't know exactly, by any means, what John was seeing in a vision when he saw this, but these are the words he used to describe it. So, to him, it seemed like the whole heavens and the earth were turned upside down. Everything inside out and things falling that shouldn't be falling. In other words, everything in total confusion and disarray. And this is how he described what he saw. And what was the effect? It doesn't take much of an earthquake to truly scare people. I've been in quite a few, and they do bring a certain amount of uh, fear to you when the earth, the house, the appliances, the bed, various things around you start shaking. It's, uh, it can be terrifying. And this is magnified many times. Now here was the effect. The kings of the earth and the great men and the rich men and the chief captains and the mighty men, the bravest of men, and every bondman and every free, every human being on earth then, every category, hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains. 
great terror came upon them and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us! Now we normally are afraid if we're standing at the base of a mountain and rocks start cascading down it. We're afraid we'll get bonked on the conch. So we duck, we run, we're afraid of landslides or rocks falling. But here you see a different scenario. In this particular case, the fear is going to be so great of what is happening around people that they pray for the rocks to fall on them. Now you're pretty scared if you want to be hit in the head with a hundred pound rock. That seems to be a good way to go instead of a bad way to go. Those are pretty fearful times. Hide us from the face of Him that sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. They are going to realize they will have been warned by the church, by God's witness, for quite some time of what is coming. And they won't believe it. So when it does come, it will scare them. Fearfully scare them. And they know who is about to appear, and they will be very, very afraid. For the great day of His wrath is come, who shall be able to stand? That question is posed in Malachi as well. We'll wind up there probably before this series is over. Well, let's go back there now, because I might, it might slip my mind. It just came to mind. Let's go back to Malachi. Where is it in here? Now, that helps a lot when you refer to something, then you can't find it. Um... Who shall stand when he appears? Let's see. The day comes, in chapter 4, that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yes, and all that do wickedly, shall be stubble. And the day that comes shall burn them up, says the eternal of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. But unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings, and you shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stall, and tread on the ashes of the wicked. That's not the one I'm looking for but it's mentioning the same type of thing. Does anybody see that yet? Has your eye fallen on it? It talks about who will stand when he appears. Oh, here it is, chapter 3. Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek shall suddenly come to his temple. He's referring here to the Elijah to come, or the John the Baptist of the end time, uh, not the original John the Baptist because Christ does have a way prepared before him. He'll suddenly come to his church, even the messenger of the covenant whom you delight in. He shall come, says the eternal of hosts, but who may abide the day of his coming? Who shall stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. And he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver, 
that they may offer to the Eternal an offering in righteousness. They will be cleansed. They will be purified. Who can stand? I think he's implying here that only the pure or those who are willing to be made pure will be able to stand. The earth, the people of the earth, small and great, will not be able to stand. Their consciences will suddenly smite them and they know that Christ is a God of righteousness and they will know that they are not righteous and therefore they will run and hide under the rocks and pray that the rocks fall on them and kill them because having rocks falling on you will be preferable to facing Christ himself. We have not dealt with fear yet. Not that kind of fear, have we? We deal with fear all the time, but we need to be educated. Let's go to Luke 23. Verse 20, uh, let's see, this, let's go to verse 27. Luke 23, 27. And there followed him a great company of people and of women, which also bewailed and lamented him. But Christ turning to them said, Daughters of Jerusalem, weep not for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. Now, he knew he was going to die. They were aware he was going to die. He was prepared for that. Now emotionally... He had some difficulty with it, and he even wished that that cup could be taken from him, but he knew that it couldn't. He had to go through with it. So he had, he had conditioned himself to be able and willing to go through what was about to come upon him. But that doesn't mean that he didn't think about it, that he didn't have to deal with those human emotions. Because he had read, and he knew very well, Isaiah 52 and 3. He knew very well Psalm 23. He knew all the scriptures about what would happen to him. And he had to deal with his emotions. Now he himself had fear. He was in all points tempted as we are. So those emotions, those feelings, that throat in your heart or your heart in your throat, uh, all the expressions we use about fear, and we have a lot of them, where something scared out of us, or something scared into us, or nothing is scared out of us, or various parts of our body. We have all kinds of expressions in the English language about fear. And he experienced those same emotions, but he dealt with them in a proper way. So he said, don't fear for me, fear for yourselves. He knew that if he was faithful in what he did, his father would resurrect him, he would have no problems, everything would turn out right, even though he was going to go through a horrendous time. Now, is that instructive for us? But he did tell them, fear for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming in the which they shall say, Blessed are the barren, and the wombs that never bear, 
and the breasts which never gave suck. The time is coming on this earth when people will say, blessed is that woman who has never, ever been pregnant, never had a child. Now, it is deep within the heart, mind, and emotions of women, females, girls, to have children. They want children, unless their minds are completely perverted for some reason. But it is a natural desire. And people have had children in terrible times on this earth, and they've become pregnant in terrible times on this earth, during World War I, World War II, NAM, other times. It has not gotten to the point where people would say, you're blessed never to have had children. To be concerned about, to worry about, to see slaughtered, raped, brutally murdered before your very eyes. That time is coming. Then shall they begin to say to the mountains, fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. That's how it's going to be. Let's go to Hosea. Now, is this just talking about the world at large? It said the small and the great, the kings of the earth, various ones of that nature. Here he's talking to the women of Jerusalem, so that gets it down to having to do with Israel as well, not just the heathen out there in the world, although Israel has certainly gone heathen. But let's go back to Hosea 10. And here I want, uh, oh, let's go to 7, 10, 7. As for Samaria, that is the northern tribes, uh, speaking of Ephraim here in the context, one of the, the leader of the northern tribes. So it's talking about, I think, our country today. If it mentions Ephraim and the northern tribes. As for Samaria, her king is cut off as the foam upon the water. The high places also of Avon, the sin of Israel, shall be destroyed. The thorn and the thistle shall come up on their altars. And they shall say to the mountains, cover us, and to the hills, fall on us. Why is God bringing that kind of destruction on Israel? I read a news article this morning. That in spite of everything that is going on in this nation, in Britain, and around the world, it still startled me. It even shocked me. It was an article about British schools. And they are bringing people in and showing films on how to be a prostitute. They are giving specific information in the communities in which the school is located, in which they tell the boys in the class where all the brothels are, and they even give the ethnicity of the girls who work there and their ages and the prices in school by the English teachers. And some are horrified in typical British fashion. There's no outrage. 
or at least not much. Have we sunk that low? Yeah, we have. The commentator who wrote the article said, we're even worse than the Americans. If you want to know how bad you are comparing yourself to the Americans, it's the way it's done in the world. We're better or worse than the Americans. I don't think that's needed in schools, do you? Is it any wonder God is going to bring this kind of destruction? Cover us to the hills, fall on us. Now, I wanted to preface this sermon with those three particular passages to drive home the fear that we feel, the fear that we see of things that are beginning to happen, and the ultimate fear that the whole world is going to fear when God truly begins to take a hand. We're seeing the beginnings, the very early beginnings of Satan's wrath at this point, and the tribulation is that. Afterward comes the day of the Lord's wrath. And if you think the devil can scare you, wait until God starts scaring you. So there are truly frightful times coming, right here in the words of God's Word. Now, I don't say these things just to frighten us, just to scare us. I say them because they're coming, they're inevitable, and who will be able to stand? And I want you to be able to stand, not to fall, not to fear in a wrong way, but to have confidence and strength, courage, and power when all these things come. Now, how are we going to go there? How do we deal with the fears we already have and those that we are about to come to have? We've read in Ephesians several times lately about taking on the whole armor of God. And in dealing with this subject of fear, I want to remind us again how he says that the Spirit of God, or that we are to take this, the sword of the Spirit. Now, when danger comes, a man who's trained with a sword feels much better with a sword in his hand instead of being barehanded. A man trained with a gun feels much safer with a gun in hand than without because there's a certain amount of protection afforded by a sword or a gun or some other means of self-defense. He says to take on the sword of the Spirit, and he defines then what the sword of the Spirit is. It is the Word of God. So what I want to do today, and probably for some time, so that we're immersed in this subject is to go to the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. So when fear comes upon us, we need to be sure that we are armed with the right implements or tools to deal with it. 
So, the object here is not to frighten us further, because we already have fears we have to deal with. The object is to teach us what to fear, what not to fear, and then how to handle fear. How do you deal with it? What do you do with it? Forewarned is forearmed. We need to know. And that's why Paul said what he did. Go to the Word of God if you want an answer. Now, you can go to the libraries, you can go to the bookstores, to Amazon or wherever, and you can find thousands of books written on the psychoses and fears of people and how to deal with your inner demons and, you know, all kinds of books that deal with the frailties and fears of human beings. Those are available to the millions and billions of people on this earth. How much good do you think all of those self-help books are going to do people when the things we just read about come on this earth? None of them teach a proper relationship in fear of God. None of them teach all the things that are about to happen on the earth and how they can be circumvented. They don't teach them to pray that they be accounted to worthy to escape all these things. They don't prepare them in any way for what's coming. They may prepare them for fear of a job loss, maybe, or some other inane or common thing in life. Fear of divorce or fear of death or whatever. They may give them some platitudes that will help them through those circumstances. Somewhat. But do they give them the real lessons that they need to see them through what we are about to witness and to come through it and be able to stand before God? The only place we're going to find that kind of instruction is right here in this book. The only place. That's why we take on the sword of the Spirit of God. The Word of God. Let's go back to the book of Genesis. We went there last week and we saw where fear first gripped mankind. Went through the story of Adam and Eve. How they sinned and then became ashamed and afraid. So, fear started early with man. Maybe only a day or two after Adam and Eve were created, they came to know the stark fear of God and the shame and fear of one another and so on that mankind has experienced ever since. So let's move forward from there. Let's go to Genesis 15. Uh, we went through a series not long ago about turning our hearts to our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Ephraim, specifically for us. And this story with fear is going to go back there. We're going to see some of the fears and overcoming a fear of all those people. Genesis 15, beginning in verse 1. After these things, the word of the Eternal came to Abram in a vision, saying... Fear not, Abram. Now God is fearful. Christ's eyes shine like the sun in its full glory. He is so righteous 
in comparison to us, that it is fearful. And we will see and have seen and read, we all know those scriptures, where when people were encountering God, when He would appear or an angel of God would appear, it truly scares people. They fall on their faces in the case of righteous angels or Christ Himself. When demons appear, sometimes they fall over backward. It's a different type of reaction, but it's fear in any case. So when the Lord appeared to Abram in a vision, the first thing He said is, don't be afraid. Now why did He say that? Because He knew Abram would be afraid. He knew he was seeing something he had never known or experienced ever before. And he knew it would scare him spitless. So he said, first of all, don't be afraid. I am your shield and your exceeding great reward. Now there's a great deal of comfort there. Some of us grew up in churches where we learned religiously to be afraid in a wrong way of God. Some churches teach solely a fear religion, where you are to be in terror of God. Because if you do this or you do that, you're going to hell. So hell and living forever in hell is one of their primary messages because they want to scare the sin out of people. Now, they don't even know what sin is, but they want to scare it out of you. So it's one of their major tools. You know, there, there are minor tools that you use when you're building a house, maybe a plumb line or something, plumb bob. You use that occasionally. You use a hammer and maybe a screwdriver or a pair of pliers very frequently. And in some churches... Hard-shell Baptists, the South, sometimes the Catholics, various ones. They use hell a lot. There is a place for fear. But we need to grasp what God first said to Abram the first time he came to him. I'm not here to destroy you. I'm not here to hurt you. I'm here to be your shield. That keeps hurt from coming to you. I am here to be your shield and your exceeding great reward. Now here's Abram, who's just a man. He doesn't yet really know God. He doesn't yet have a real relationship with God, just as we didn't either at some point in life. And then we began to come to know God somewhat. Now, God was in that sense introducing Himself here to Abram and telling him some things. Now, when you meet another human being, you don't know that person, do you? And you don't necessarily trust them either. Now, some people are skeptical of everything and everybody. Other people are pretty well positive and trusting of almost anyone until proven otherwise. So you have a wide spectrum of different kinds of human beings. Some tend to be trusting, others do not. But when you meet someone, you don't know them. 
And you have to get to know them over a period of time to know whether you can trust them, be comfortable with them, or whether you must always be in fear or avoid them. And it takes time to come to know someone well enough to trust them. doesn't come easy, does it? Now, God is the same way, and we need to understand that. That's the way God approached Abram here. Look, you don't have to worry and be afraid of me. I'm here to help you. But we as human beings, if we've been burned before, say, wait just a minute, we'll see. I'm from Missouri, show me. Or whatever we say. But we want to see the proof of the pudding, don't we? We want to know. Now, our beginnings of our relationships with God are very rudimentary. It takes time to come to even trust God, doesn't it? You have to see Him perform. You have to see that you don't get zapped immediately the first time you do something wrong. You have to, over a period of time, learn of the mercy and forgiveness of God and how great it truly is. Most of us have thought things or done things, even since we've been in the church, that have made us wonder if God is about to zap us, (laughs) strike us dead. But He doesn't. And we learn. Now, it can do one of two things. It can make us think, well, God doesn't really care, which is a wrong reaction. Or it can teach us His patience, His love, His mercy, His forgiveness, His kindness, His gentleness. And that He truly is there as a shield, and He really wants to give us a great and exceeding reward. Now, I get stuff in the mail once in a while, or used to more, don't much anymore because I've tried to opt out of all that stuff, but I would get something, have Ed McMahon's picture on it. We want to give you a great and exceeding reward. All you have to do is send this special number back in, and you may have already won three million bucks or whatever. Now, they're lying to me. They don't want to give me a great and exceeding reward. They want to sell magazines or whatever. And they're willing to give $3 million to somebody, or at least claim they'll give it to them, if we'll all go buy their magazines. Now you see, I have a certain amount of skepticism when I see those things in the mail. Because I've learned over and over... But when it says, you have already won, and they'll put it that way, you have already won. Oh, goody, I have won. This form letter says so. And then in real small print it says, if you have this number, which is not going to happen. We have so much difficulty trusting people because people are not trustworthy. And human being, human nature being what it is, that we also have difficulty believing and trusting God. And we have to learn that over time. 
through experiences. I am your shield and your exceeding great reward. And Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless and the steward of my house is this Eliezer of Damascus? He says, okay, I'll test you right away. What are you going to give me? I don't have a son. Who's going to carry on my name? That was something that Abraham was very concerned about. People were in those days. More so, I think, than today in some respects. Behold, to me you've given no seed, and lo, one born in my house is my heir. Somebody else's boy is the only one I can give what I got to. So, Abraham put him to the test right away. He said, Behold, the word of the Eternal came to him, saying, This shall not be your heir, but he that shall come forth out of your own bowels shall be your heir. And he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven and tell the stars, if you be able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your seed be. Not only will I give you a son, but let's go out and look at the stars, Abram. You can't count those. Your seed are going to be like the vast panoply of the Milky Way. Countless will be your seed. Would you begin to say, oh, well, yeah, come on, wait a minute. I was just thinking maybe a son. And you tell me this? That would be the reaction of a lot of people. And he believed in the eternal. And the eternal then counted it to him for righteousness. Well, God said, this is going to happen. And then he made Abram wait a long time before it happened. He was, going to have, he was going to let him go through all the ups and downs and emotions that come upon us when we've been promised something and it doesn't come right away. It reminds me a bit of us in the church who had the cry wolf, wolf over and over and how many gun laps did we go through and it didn't come. How many dates were set that didn't work out? There have been a lot of ups and downs. There have been a lot of emotions go a lot of different ways for anybody that's been in the church over a period of 30, 40, 50, 60 years. That which we expected has not yet come. Even the destruction at the end of the age has not yet come. Now we're getting down to the point it looks like it is almost upon us. And that which we anticipated and wanted to see happen so we could get to the other side now scares us. But God is busy building a trust, a patience, a looking to Him. To us it may seem interminable. To us it may seem like, wow, when is it ever going to happen? may be frustrating. He says it will be so frustrating that some will even give up. It says that because sin will abound, the love of many will turn cold in Matthew 24. That all will go to sleep. It's just too much, too long, too hard. It's an emotional roller coaster, really up and down. Has been and is about to be. 
But do you grasp, can we even imagine, the ups and downs that Abraham and Sarah went through? Now, Abraham believed him. But do you think that that belief kind of went up and down and sometimes he believed it more than others? Can you imagine the conversations that went on between Abraham and Sarah? I'm old, you're old. How's this going to happen? <laughs> Do you think? Is it possible? No, not this month. Well, she was already past all that anyway. Beyond belief. Beyond comprehension. God tells you this is going to happen, and then He puts conditions upon you which make it appear to all intents and purposes that it could never happen. No way. And yet they believed. And they kept trying, if possible. And finally, it happened. Now God had prepared their minds, had prepared their emotions for years and years. And then he did what he said he would do. Do we get impatient, perhaps fearful, wondering? Will all these prophecies that we've read about happen? Will they really come to pass? We're in a bit of a lull in the action at the moment as we've spoken of recently several times. Is that when you give up and say, well, this just can't be? I just don't believe it. Those emotions will go through our heads, just like they did Abraham's and Sarah's. Nothing's happening. Nothing's going on. Not tonight, honey. Dead as a doornail. Still no action. Years and years went by. When you compare what they went through to what we've gone through so far, it's really not that much, is it? By comparison. And yet, it's still here and it's still us. And we still wonder. And we still waver. And we still fear. And we even begin once in a while to, oh my, this can't be. How much do we trust the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God? We have seen things in here that other people have not seen. We have seen how they apply to us in ways that others have not yet seen. We know what is going to happen, don't we? I've read it so many times. I've gone over it hundreds. I've gone over it thousands of times, literally. All those scriptures. They're there, and they're in the Word of God. And yet, still, once in a while, we'll waver a little bit. And we have to go back and read it again and be sure that's what it says and try to grasp, well, when and where and how is this? Most people just write all these prophecies of the end time off into the millennium. But we've seen too much how they're in the time of the two witnesses and of the regathering of the church and so on before Christ ever comes, haven't we? 
We know it. That's why we're here. We know those things are true. Just as Abram and Sarah knew that God had said it so it had to happen. They just didn't know when. And the when can make you doubt almost anything, can't it? Because if it doesn't happen, how and when you think, then you begin to doubt. It didn't happen how and when Abram and Sarah thought it would. But they hung in there. And it did happen. Isaac was born. And God gave them a warning. He gave them a little encouragement toward the end. said, didn't he? A year from now, it'll happen. And it did. So God gives us encouragement here and there. But we simply have to learn to trust. And what is trust? It is the opposite of fear. Believe Him when He says it's going to happen. Then do everything in your power to make sure you're there to partake of it when it does happen, because it is going to happen. That's the bottom line. Chapter 20 of Genesis. Now, this is the case where Abraham had become Abraham, and his wife was a very lovely lady, and he was afraid of what would happen when Abimelech saw her, so we've been over the story recently, he lied. Go down to about verse 11, well, verse 10, Abimelech said to Abraham, what saw you that you have done this thing? Why did you lie? And tell me she was your sister. And Abraham said, Because I thought, Surely the fear of God is not in this place, and they will slay me for my wife's sake. Now Abraham had learned some things about fear, and yet I think that God put this example in here for us, because as righteous as Abraham became, as high a position as he is going to have in the kingdom of God, and he is going to be there, and he is going to be ruling, he had to deal with his everyday fears. He learned how to deal with those fears. He learned, eventually, not to lie for fear of men but to fear God. But it is natural for people, when they are afraid of what might happen to them, to lie. I dare say there's not a person in this room who has not lied from fear. We all started lying very early in life, didn't we? When dad or mom said, how did this happen? Fear came upon us. Fear of consequence. Fear of the paddle. Fear of having to sit in the corner. Fear of washing the dishes or whatever our particular 
phobics or phobias were. So Johnny did it, or Matilda did it, or somebody else did it besides me. We'll place blame elsewhere, which is a lie. Starts really early, and it becomes habitual. And some people have lied so much in their lives they don't even know the truth themselves anymore. Psychopathic liars who can look you right in the eye and tell you what they think is the truth and it is not the truth whatsoever and they don't even know the difference they've learned to lie so well. They don't even know what the truth is themselves, much less be able to tell you the truth. That's the far side of it. But I find it encouraging somewhat that Abraham had maybe the same problem that we might have at a time like that. With fear losing our wife, with fear being killed. I can see very easily why he lied, can't you? That's not too hard to figure out. Now what was the problem here? He feared Abimelech more than he feared God. God had already told him, I'm your reward, I am your shield, I want to reward you, I want to take care of you and protect you. Isn't that the, one of the very first thing he said to him is, I am your shield, to protect you from what might come. So he gets into a corner here where he thinks he might be in trouble, in trouble and he forgot that God was his shield. So he used lying for a shield. Now that didn't work out too well, did it? Abimelech saw through it finally. He realized what Abraham had done, and then he was really angry because he says, what if I touched her? And, and in one sense, he feared Abraham's God worse than Abraham did. I might have to deal with your God if I touch you. Is it sometimes that the world out-Christians the Christians? And their approach and attitude and fear of God? Sometimes that's true. It's true right here. But notice how God immediately gave up on Abraham. Abraham, you lied, you broke my commandment. Zap! Abraham died in his tracks, didn't he? No. No, he had a lesson to learn. He crossed this bridge again later on in his life. Is this the first or second time? He did it twice anyway. God is merciful. God gives us a chance. He lets us learn. He tries us. He tests us. We fall on our nose. We make mistakes. And yet, we go on. Because he is not here to destroy us. God doesn't hate us. God loves us. And therefore, He's willing to put up with us until we learn better. And He'll keep putting the same stuff on us until we learn better. He'll just let it happen over and over and over again. How long does it take? What are those little, doll, those little uh, inflated things we had that were weighted on the bottom when we were kids and you'd keep batting them and they'd, they'd knock them over and they'd bounce back up? Knock them over and they bounce back up. I don't remember. But it's kind of like human beings. We keep getting knocked over. Hopefully we keep bouncing back up. 
But every time we get hit by the vicissitudes of life, it tends to bowl us over. There's a lot to learn here about Abraham and about God. He's the father of the faithful. And yet he wasn't always faithful, was he? Yet he learned in time to be faithful. He had a lot of faithfulness in himself, but not entirely. Much to learn here. 21.17 God heard the voice of the lad. Now this was Hagar's child. Remember, Hagar got kicked out in the desert by Sarah. I don't want this woman around anymore. Uh, God heard the voice of the lad, and the angel of God called a Hagar out of heaven and said to her, What ails you, Hagar? Now, the angel knew exactly what ailed Hagar. The angel had witnessed Hagar being run out into the desert by Sarah, disavowed, disassociated, excommunicated, whatever you want to say, run out of town on a rail tarred and feathered, basically. What's the problem, Hagar? Fear not. For God has heard the voice of the lad where he is. Arise, lift up the lad, hold him in your hand, for I will make him a great nation. Now, to Hagar, life was at an end. And in fact, life would end. Because put out in that desert, without food, without water, without protection, both Hagar and the child Ishmael would have died. And it would have been a slow, painful, horrible death. And she was very afraid, was she not? I have no way to do anything for myself or my son. I know we're going to die. And she was very afraid. And yet here comes an angel and says, don't be afraid. That's almost, it would be very difficult, wouldn't it? Now, when somebody comes to you and you're all worked up and scared about something, loss of job, loss of food, loss of electricity, loss of feeling in your feet, loss of uh, a heart that beats right, loss of your mind, you know, whatever you've lost, you can become very, very fearful, scared. What's going to happen to me? And somebody comes along, pat you on the says, and don't worry, be happy. Yeah, right. Who are you to tell me, don't worry, be happy? Don't you see I got problems here? That's the way we react. We resent it when people say, oh, you start expressing all your fears. All the things you're worried about and troubled about. And you'll even say, I'm a worry ward. I worry about everything. And I'm worried about this, 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 and that. And somebody says, it's okay, dearie. Don't be afraid. Go away. What do you mean, don't be afraid? I'm scared and I deserve to be. I'm going to be. So leave me alone. Let me sit here in terror. It's hard for us as human beings to comfort someone who has some pretty desperate fears, is it not? I remember being at a loss for words recently when Fred Sulis was down here. Terrible cancer. 
terrible pain, fear, concern about whether he'd be in the kingdom of God, concern whether he would live or not, and then accepting the fact that he probably would die, but still I'm sure somewhat afraid of it. And I found myself groping for words to try to comfort, to try to help, to try to ease his fear. It's very difficult to do when someone is going through what he was going through and you just feel like whatever mere words you utter, how can that help? How can that strengthen? When somebody is scared inside, it's hard to know what to say and feel like it will do much good. There's where Hagar was. Terror of herself and her child. Now, Hagar was not the chosen one of Abraham. Ishmael was not the chosen one, chosen seed that God would use. It was to be through Sarah and Isaac, not through Hagar and Ishmael. So she had a problem there. She felt discriminated against. She felt hated. She felt God was playing favorites. She had all kinds of psychoses and fears. Those became a totally different race of people. And Abraham's seed and Ishmael's seed have hated each other ever since. It's become a racial issue. And racial issues are very, very difficult to overcome because there's hurt and fear involved. Fear of how people will react. I've gone into foreign countries where everyone was a different color and a different shape and everything else than I was. Different language. It's a bit scary. You don't know how they're going to react to you. It's even getting worse now because everybody hates Americans, so I don't even want to travel anymore anymore than I absolutely have to. God has heard the voice of the lad. Verse 18, Arise, lift up the lad, and hold him in your hand, for I will make him a great nation. And God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water, and she went and filled the bottle with water and gave the lad drink. And God was with the lad, and he grew and dwelt in the wilderness and became an archer. And he dwelt in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took him a wife out of the land of Egypt. And then he became many nations, a great nation. Ishmael, Arabic basically today. God gave encouragement and comfort. He said he would do that. Did Hagar and that lad have trouble believing it? They got a little bit of an answer, didn't they? Water appeared. Has God made the same promises with you and me? Have we read in Isaiah 51 about how He will bring us a garden of Eden and the garden of God? And how He will put a wall of fire around us and a covert from the heat above us? Right there in the context of Joshua and Zerubbabel and the two witnesses and the end-time remnant of the church. It's in the context of the end time, not the millennium. God has promised that. 
I've had people laugh and shake their heads in scorn and say, where's that cloud? Where's that fire? And my answer has been, it'll be here when we need it. We don't need it yet. It will come. There will be springs of water in the desert. God will plant His remnant church and physical trees in the desert to take care of His people. That's what the book says. Do you believe that? Do you trust that? Do you pray toward that? Do you wait patiently for that? Or does fear grip us once in a while when we see things happening in the world? We've got a lot more to see ahead of us. But even the unwanted, even, in a sense, the bastard child sent away, not considered legitimate by Abraham and by Sarah. God took care of. He's that kind, that loving. He made sure everyone was taken care of in the whole situation. Here's a God we need to read about. Here's a God we need to be concerned with. Here's a God that can take care of your friends, your family, your relatives, your children that may not be called in this age. He's called the weak in the base, us. Now, we heard in a sermonette about how a shepherd chooses sheep if he's going to buy some and he gets those with good confirmation, gets the ones that look healthy, ones that their ears are up and their tails are down. He picks out the best of what's in front of him and buys those. Now, God doesn't always do it that way, does He? He looks down at the earth and says, well, that one's mighty and noble, looks pretty good. Eh. That one's pretty smart, pretty educated. Eh. Now, there's one that's kind of sway back and three-legged. Not very bright. Gets in trouble all the time. Think I'll have that one. Kind of shape funny, too. It's the kind he's looking for. It's the kind he wants to transform. It's the kind that normally and naturally ought to be fearful. Not very bright, not very good looking, kind of sway backed and stupid. That one I can use. I'm going to show the mighty and the noble how I can take this one that has all kinds of psychoses and fears because they barely can make a living, barely pick one foot up and put it in front of the other and get through life, and they're afraid of all kinds of things, I'm going to teach them not to be afraid. I'm going to teach them to lie down in green pastures and walk beside the still waters. This is one I can use. Don't be afraid. I'll take care of you. But then we have trouble believing that. And we fear anyway. We tend to be worry warts to one degree or of another. God wants that to go away. He wants us to have confidence and faith and trust 
And doesn't he give us a little now and then? He didn't make Hagar's whole world turn into a Garden of Eden at that point. But he showed her enough water to get her to believe him through the angel. God doesn't always heal us right now. Sometimes we get frustrated. But sometimes he does intervene, doesn't he? And he takes away a certain amount of pain. He gives us a certain amount of relief so that we can stay alive and deal with it. There should be enough when we see those things happen that it renews and increases our trust and our faith in him that ultimately this is going to turn out right. Sarah will get pregnant and have a child. We will bring forth the man-child. We will become righteous. We will have the blessings of God. It will happen and will be in the kingdom of God. Because he's able to take that which is nothing and make it into something. But he doesn't do it immediately. It doesn't matter where we go in this Bible, and I may stay on this, and we may go through all of it. I don't know how much. Because this is one of the biggest issues there is. is human beings coming to truly trust and believe in God. It goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. And it has to do with every person who's drawn breath ever since. And maybe even especially those who are facing the end time and all the horrors that are talked about in all the prophets and even in the book of Revelation at the end of the whole thing. It's the hardest lesson that human beings have to learn is not to trust in the hand of man or anything else or in themselves but to trust and believe in God. And He will put us through unimaginable things to get the lesson through to us and to bring us to that kind of belief. When he comes, he will be a refiner's fire. Who will be able to stand? You will. You will. Because He's refining you now. He's putting you through the fire. He's putting you through the paces. He's giving you trials, troubles, difficulties. He's allowing illnesses. He's allowing mental problems. He's allowing financial problems. He's allowing any kind of problem you might imagine. And what do every one of those troubles you face generate within you? Fear. Undoubtedly, unquestionably, and almost constantly. We fear anything and everything you can imagine. And the transition from that to absolute total trust in God is what we're up against. As we begin to deal with our fears, 
as we begin to put our fingers out and trust God, little by little by little, I can trust Him with this. I'm not ready to trust Him with that. I might trust Him a little bit over here, but, oh boy, I don't know. I I think there's a better solution. Maybe God isn't hearing me. Maybe God's not answering. Maybe God doesn't care. We, We can bring all kinds of things to our mind to justify taking a solution for whatever it might be that is not the best solution. Now, sometimes there are proper solutions to a certain fact, a problem we might be having, that we can take. In terms of healing, he said he's put certain things here for us. There are examples of poultices of fresh figs. There are examples of honey and oil and various things that were used at times. And they're okay to be used. So there may be a proper solution. And then the medical world has a vast panoply, a cornucopia, if you will, of all kinds of remedies for anything you want to name. Pick your poison. They got one for your situation. Someone asked me just recently, well, should I do this? Should I do that? Is this a proper procedure to let the medical world take? I've been asked that question dozens, hundreds of times perhaps over the years. And my conclusion is this. I'm not going to tell you. Now you'd rather somebody else take the responsibility of telling you whether this is a proper course or not because that takes it off your back because we're afraid to make a decision sometimes when we consider things and we wonder, is this the right way to go or not the right way to go? And those are legitimate questions in our mind. We have to sort them out. But I'm not about to tell you what you should or should not do in any given case. That is something that is between you and God. It is something between you and the words of God. It's something that's between you and your conscience and God. It's something to do with your education. And it has everything to do with how much you trust God with your health and wealth and life at any given moment in time. And that's something that can only be learned through a lifetime of facing all kinds of different situations and working at coming up with the best solution. What would God most desire of me? What would be not the worst, the sort of okay, the okay, the good, the better, or the best solution here? That's something He has you work out with fear and trembling. But the object ultimately is to teach you Trust and faith in God. And it begins very small. And it has to grow and grow and grow. So that as you go through life, you face every kind of barrier, every kind of hurdle, every kind of situation imaginable. 
And you have to figure out the best and godly solution to it. And then implement it. And sometimes it is very, very difficult. We face it in issues of belief and doctrine. Sometimes those are the things that just tie me in absolute knots. Determining whether I should not a tie or not. For a very simple one. Whether you should move out in the desert or not. Whether or not I should leave this organization or not. Or that organization. Wherever. What is the best? What is the wisest? What would God have me to do and why? Some of those decisions. Should we abandon the Hebrew calendar? That one tied me in knots for months and months and months. Walking and praying and studying and reading and trying to figure out what's the best solution. What would God want done here? Didn't come easy. Afraid to? Afraid not to. Fear. Fear of unknown. What if I'm wrong? Well, what if you're not wrong? You can have your guts in an uproar over something, not knowing what is the right solution, and God doesn't just suddenly send an angel, ping, and just tell you. Why don't you just tell me already? What do you want me to do? I'll do it. That would be too easy. No, God wants you to sort it out in this book, sort it out in your head, in your emotions, in your mind, and come up with the right answer. Seek, and you will find me. Look for me like you would gold and silver, and you will find me. Search. It's not easy. And there's a great deal of fear involved. But in time, we come to learn to have a trust and a lack of paralyzing fear and an awe and a respect and the right kind of fear of God. And hopefully at the same time, we're beginning to trust Him a little more we'll begin to trust the world a little less. We'll trust the bankers and the financial advisors a little less. We'll trust the doctors in the medical field a little less. We'll trust God a little more. It's something that comes over time. So when you want to know, should I do this or should I do that... A minister needs to have enough wisdom to say, I'm not going to give you that answer. That's something you need to answer yourself. That's something you need to struggle with and read the Scriptures with and get on your knees and talk to God about until you come up with the right answer. That's part of growth and overcoming. See, God is not going to take a group because they're in a group. There are a lot of the churches of God out there who say, if you're in this group, everything's going to be A-OK. God does not do that. Each man will answer to God. Each of us, in that sense, is an island. Now, we need each other so that we're not alone. We need each other to encourage and help us and inspire us and strengthen us. We need each other to set examples. We need to sharpen each other. 
as iron sharpens iron. Yes, we need each other. We really, truly do. But we also have to stand before God alone. I don't care how many people you have standing around your deathbed, you will die alone. It's your life that is slipping away. Not those people around the bed. They can do their best to try to encourage you and strengthen you to trust in God and know that everything will be okay in the resurrection. But they don't know what to say. They try. But it's you and between you and God. That's where it is. And no one can cross that bridge but you. Be prepared. Know what this book says. Sort out the answers. There was a time when in worldwide, much of the ministry tried to live your life for you. Tried to help you with every little decision. What kind and what color of car or shirt or whatever. What was in your kitchen cupboard? What was wrong? You can't live someone else's life for them. You can't make their decisions for them. You can't take that responsibility off their back or they'll never learn responsibility. They'll never learn wisdom and how to make right decisions. Let them live in fear to one degree or another. Let them God has put that on them so that they might learn even the hard way how to make right and wise decisions. Now, it's our job, if we stand here to teach, to teach you the ways of God, to point out the Word of God, to expound the Word of God, to take a subject like fear, which is all through the Bible, a subject like fear, which is in every one of us, all kinds of fears and psychoses. It's our job to point those scriptures out and to show you the examples of how people in here handled it, how God handled certain situations. It's our job to show you those, and then you have to apply those things to your life to make wise and proper decisions in every facet of your life. Sometimes you will make good decisions. Sometimes you will make bad decisions. Sometimes you'll be blessed for the decisions you make, and sometimes you'll get a boot in the rear. It's just the way it is. How did Christ learn? He learned by the things he suffered. He learned compassion. He didn't sin, but he had things to learn about compassion different aspects of love, different aspects of mercy, so that having lived this life and had to go through the agony of making right decisions, he saw things on this earth he wanted as a human being that he could not have. He had to learn to make right decisions. He had to suffer 
the agony of telling himself no. And it was very difficult at times. Very difficult. Because you want what you want, don't you? And we'll go to great lengths to get what we want as human beings. He learned by suffering. By denying himself. And sometimes it was very difficult because he was at all points tempted as we are. There is nothing that you have ever desired or wanted or been tempted to think or do that Christ himself did not go through. Every desire of the flesh that any of us have ever felt, he had. The difference between him and you and me is he never gave in. The fact that he never sinned shows that the desire, the emotion, the temptation is not in and of itself a sin. When lust conceives, it brings forth sin. When something you desire that is inordinate or wrong is thought about until it brings forth sin is when it becomes sin. Now Christ had every desire, every temptation, so the thoughts went through his head of what he wanted. The pulls of the flesh were there just like they are in you and me. It's how he dealt with them. And he learned wisdom, he learned understanding, compassion, mercy, and love for us by suffering those things. And now, as our high priest at the throne of Almighty God in heaven, he understands by far better than he ever would have had he not come down here and lived on this earth as a human being. He understands by far what you and I go through. And knowing how hard it was for him to always say no to wrong desires, he has learned compassion and pity when we, as weak as we are, sometimes give in. Aren't we thankful for that? Because when we sin, that creates fear too, doesn't it? But when he forgives us and shows mercy, then that gives us the confidence that God really cares and really does love us. That a sin that should bring death brings mercy and forgiveness and love. Now, it's easy to despise that. There's even a scripture that says because... It's in Ecclesiastes, because punishment does not come immediately upon us. The moment we do something wrong, then men begin not to fear God. So they take God's compassion and mercy and forgiveness as consent to keep doing what they're doing. So eventually, 
That lesson will also have to be learned. Is don't mistake God's mercy and forgiveness for uncaring or allowing. That's a major lesson we have to learn. So, God is going to allow you to be afraid. God is going to allow all kinds of things to come on you. And you're going to have to sort it out. I wish I could say it was going to be easier than that, but it's not. That's just life. We have to learn to deal with it. I will continue here with some more examples of how people learn to deal with their fears, their troubles. And maybe it will help us to learn to deal with ours. So we'll stop there for today.